0: I would like to invite Bert Emerson to come up. Uh, Bert and I were actually slated to share on hospitality together this morning. <clears throat> and in a very hospitable way, Bert offered to take the primary load because I got super sick and lost my voice this week. And it is back this morning, but only just in time. So, Bert is going to share what God has placed on his heart, and then we're going to have a little bit of a debrief together at the end. So, this is Bert Emerson. We share a last name. We share a home, a marriage, a family. Um.
1: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, I actually uh, need to stand up on a step, because I'm not very tall, as Kevin or Russ or Jerusha or anybody. I actually want to go up here. I feel like these have been neglected for the last four years since we've been here, and uh, or this side better, better over here. Maybe I like have a little dialogue with myself, going back and forth. I, you might notice that I'm a little nervous. The last time I stood in front of a church congregation for as long as I am this morning, um, I was about eight years old. It was a, a church that collected membership cards from a, or attendance cards from everybody who showed up and. The little boys in the in the church would um, like gather them, and it was really like a pride of place to get the middle aisle to like get up front after the sermon and get to walk down the middle and collect the cards that were passed. And uh, unfortunately, um, that day there was a, an altar call that was answered, and so I was standing at the front for quite some time, uh, and. Uh, It had been a few weeks since I'd been in the middle, so I was, uh, didn't want to give up my spot, and uh, really had to go to the bathroom, and to my mother's chagrin, I just sort of let it rip right there in front of everybody, and uh, I thought I was wearing, I mean I was wearing khaki pants, and I thought it just would blend in, you wouldn't notice the wetness. So I want to lower expectations before we start. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. So, uh, yeah, I w- was invited back over the summer as part of one of the, as Russ has been going on sabbatical to, to be one of the, I really enjoyed last week's sharing and to, to, to learn, and I hope to to be able to share a little bit um, as uh, that is meaningful as well. It's been a blessed morning of Worship, thank you to Tara and Claire for for leading us in a really beautiful time. Um, Obviously, we had this sacred moment of of installing a new elder, uh, um, talking about small groups. Hopefully, all this fits in this topic that I've been asked to address today. Um, The passage that I was offered in the topic, uh, I was asked to speak on hospitality Uh, in relation to the passage from Mark chapter 2. Verses 13 to 17. The passage reads, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have have come to call, not the righteous, but the sinner. This is the word of the Lord. have a script here which I'll try to look up from from time to time but when I don't have a script I, it gets real bad so I say really crazy things and the fact that I didn't just use profanity right there is showing you that the Lord is with me today so I was asked to speak about this passage from Mark in relation to the topic of hospitality and there's so much that I appreciate in this passage where Jesus after, a full and no doubt exhausting day of teaching goes out for some dinner afterward in a way that most assuredly defied social conventions. And when questioned by the religious leaders, he rebukes and corrects them by telling them in no uncertain term that these sinners are the very people who most need him and his presence. We see our Lord and Savior prioritizing those in need over those who are secure. And we must also do likewise. We, followers of Christ, must be hospitable to those who some religious leaders might find unworthy, ready to overthrow conventional order, and, like a physician, to bring healing and good health to those who are most in need. As I've been preparing to share on this passage in relation to this topic of hospitality, I had one of those moments, I'm sure, that sermon givers have on a regular occasion. At first glance, the passage and the topic seemed perfectly well-suited. And yet, after spending a little extra time with the passage and the topic, complications begin to arise. It's not really a new experience for me as an English professor. Um, in that job, I encountered the situation repeatedly as I am teaching the process we call close reading. Um, this is a practice adapted from biblical hermeneutics and integrated into the toolbox of literary analysis. You spend enough time with anything, a passage from scripture, a work of verbal or visual art, A legal document, a political speech, a TV commercial, someone's haircut or choice of fashion, whatever. And ideas that you didn't see originally begin to emerge and impact the larger takeaway of the entire piece. I don't think we need to spend too much time with this passage to see an issue addressing the topic of hospitality. Sure, Jesus is overturning social conventions by hanging out with some unseemly characters. But he's not exactly hosting them in his own home, is he? He's the recipient of their hospitality. I mean, he, he sees Levi and just says, Follow me. And then I guess Jesus has Levi follow him right back to Levi's home. Talk about inviting yourself over, right? However, awkward this setup, the story then goes on to show that Jesus shows up at a party, suffers a little tisk tisk from the religious leaders, and then succinctly puts the Pharisees and the scribes right into their place. Now, how these Pharisees knew about this party, what they were doing hanging around at this place that they weren't supposed to be, you know, that's that's a whole other conundrum, but I'll avoid that for the moment. As far as hospitality goes, though, it's the sinners who are doing the hosting here, right? So what might I do with this little aha moment? I could probably just sort of pass over it and avoid bringing it up, but... And we could probably sit here and talk about hospitality and fulfill one another, about how we need to roll up our sleeves and invite people over, maybe in our small groups, redouble our efforts here at New Community about our mission to be a community of extravagant welcome. Maybe share a story or two about how I do that really well and you can learn from my example, not the peeing in your pants example, but uh, another version. And we can all feel warm and cozy about that. But if you know me at all, I'm not really one for cliche or platitude. And as an old ball coach, I typically prefer challenging folks a bit, myself included. So I'd like to take this opportunity to speculate at some elements of hospitality that defy social conventions. On the one hand, what we do to be hospitable. And on the other, how ready we are, like Jesus in this passage, to be on the receiving end of hospitality. So i start with some thoughts about on the giving side of hospitality. I'll start with some personal details, which makes me comfortable. (laughs) When I start thinking about being hospitable, uh, my first thoughts go to the fact that I spent the first 20 years of my adult life living in small apartments that offered very little space for hosting anybody. A week before my 43rd birthday, Jerusha, Samuel, and I uh, moved into our house at 1027 West Montgomery Avenue. It only took, you know, until I was 43 to get an actual house and be a grown-up. And I was excited to get to do some hosting. It's been a blessing to open up our home to a small group, uh, to friends over dinner, to Whitworth students who are taking our classes or enjoying a department Christmas party, to guests from out of town who we don't have to put up in a hotel anymore, or really we ask them to pay for the hotel. Well, thanks, Dad. Um, Partway through the pandemic, um, you know, we took it a step further. Jerusha's parents moved in with us. About a month later, we just brought home an eight day old baby girl just out of the blue. That was Elizabeth who uh, we had a room for. Um, Jerusha's brother Nathaniel joined us this summer. We just keep sort of having people come and it's like, oh man, this this feels good to be so hospitable. And thank goodness we have this space where we can provide safe haven I want to push on this little bit of a feel-good narrative. I I was always able to offer hospitality in those little tiny apartments in Los Angeles and when we first moved to Spokane. But on a deeper level, what I really want to press on is thinking about how my story of hospitality comes from what I had in abundance. And I wonder to what degree that we tend to think of hospitality in that way. That once we have enough, Then we can share, only if there's a little extra space, and only when there's a little something left over. I think this is our tendency in the U.S. especially, where we have so much abundance and so much that's disposable. It makes me question just how often I think of hospitality in the places where I've already taken care of my own, and then I can offer something more with the bits and crumbs that are left over. As I started thinking more on this approach to hospitality, my thoughts turned to a term that I think is connected with hospitality, charity. Growing up, I knew that I was supposed to be as charitable as I was hospitable. It was modeled for me by my parents and by schools where I studied, places where privilege the privilege had enough and always asked us to think of others. And I was ready to serve to do community service, to try to follow the directive from Jesus in Matthew 6 that says, when you give to the poor, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Now I want to digress for a bit and just mention that for those of you who are checking your Bibles, Matthew 6, it actually, the right and the left hand are reversed, but as a lefty, I'm pretty sure that Jesus too was a lefty. I feel like it's important to, to, that, to correct the text that I'm sure was just right-handed bias. This is why I shouldn't go off script. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it, the, the text says the right. What, anyway, okay. So I'd been steeped in these things as a kid, this, this notion of giving, as a, a, going to church, and later as a ju- young adult listening closely to sermons and talks at conferences and reading books on Christian living. Sure, I knew that we, like the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10, should sell everything and give it to the poor and then we would have treasures in heaven. But that was really about an attitude rather than an actual directive to little old me, right? It wasn't until a little later in life that I remember being profoundly struck by ideas on charity and hospitality that I found in some novels, things that differed from what I had been brought up with or heard in church. One such example comes from one of the first great English novels, the novel that all you know and love and come back to again and again and again and again Henry Fielding's The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling. Anybody read it? Tom Jones? One of the first English novels. It's really important. You should check it out. It's really long. Um, Anyway, it's in this vast novel with a massive cast of characters and a maelstrom of moving parts. It it, it was written in 1749, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> I haven't read, reread it in 20 years. But I do remember th- that charity was a central topic of concern, it was worried about the social conditions in England during this 18th century moment. And there were lots of wealthy types who clearly had the capacity to help those in need and rationalize their ways out of helping or just helping out of what was left over. But there was also this one small town vicar that I, whose name I can't remember, but who made a case that stood out to me and has stuck with me ever since Could we call it charity, and maybe I want to add in, could we call it hospitality if it it didn't come at significant cost to the one who's giving? This idea that we didn't merely plan out our budgets, make sure we had enough to give the church from our steady little incomes, that when we gave, we should just make sure one hand didn't know what the other was doing. Were we actually supposed to give more than we should in a way that might put ourselves in a bit of a predicament? This idea really stood out in the novel as creating more problems than it solved, which makes sense in the 18th century when individualism and self-sufficiency were quickly becoming the norms on both sides of the Atlantic. But this vicar was, I mean, as represented here, he was seen as a bit of a crackpot in this novel. And it made me wonder just how little I had heard about such a notion and how persuaded I was that maybe this was a little bit better demonstration of charity and hospitality and part of my calling. One other literary example that comes to mind too, uh, a more recent novel, Colin McCann's Let the Great World Spin from 2009. So this is a book that's very special between me and Jerusha, and if you want that story, you can ask us some other time. But um, anyway, I remember reading this book for the first time and being blown away by this Irish Jesuit priest named Corgan who had immigrated from Dublin to New York City in the 1970s. And the story tracks a younger brother who was left behind, who shortly after their mother dies, comes to find his brother Corrigan and to share the news. um, And finding his brother struggling mightily with his own faith, but also living in absolute squalor while he reserved an open door policy for prostitutes and drug abusers and all sorts of poverty stricken types to come in and just to use his bathroom whenever they wanted. Both novels offer so much more than just these small snippets that I've shared here, but they're moments that have struck me so deeply about what it means to be charitable and what it means to be hospitable. These literary examples help me see that it was Jesus at the house of the sinners instead of the other way around. Jesus wasn't hosting these people in his own home. He He didn't have one, right? I mean, he was roaming around giving from a spiritual source that knew no end, but from little that one might presume to be material sure when jesus needed to draw on supernatural powers he could turn water into wine he could transform loaves and fishes into a, a feast for thousands but jesus wasn't exactly looking forward to the time when he could buy himself a home so that then he could then start being charitable and hospital and become our true example of extravagant welcome I know I'm supposed to give to be charitable and to be hospitable, but how ready am I to see it hurt me as much as these literary types might suggest that it should? I want to take a few more moments to think about the other side of the coin, our readiness to be like Jesus in this story on the receiving end of hospitality. So remember, Jesus got in trouble with the religious authorities for accepting an invitation to a house full of sinners. How do I understand this example in my attempts to be a Christ follower? Should I start inviting myself over to some houses? I mean, I'm available today if if someone can also watch my kids, you know, like I'm always happy to be invited to dinner or lunch. Anyway, Uh, I I mean, probably more seriously, though, I, I have to confess that at times I use this idea of Jesus among the sinners Um, as an excuse to do a lot of drinking in bars. So because Jesus had hung out with sinners, then I could too, right? And and who was I not to drink right along beside them, even if that meant drinking more than one or five, or maybe enjoying a little conversation with those around me, maybe running home in abject fear at the end of the night as both self-preservation and as a small bit of penance. But here's the more direct point, and at an even deeper level, I've spent a lot of the last 15 years or so wondering a little bit how readily I might be welcomed to Christ's table. Intellectually, I know I'm welcome. Experientially, I know that Jesus will always welcome me there, no matter what I've done. But I wrestle a lot with my own worthiness. Wasn't always that way. I grew up pretty sure about living in a manner that would make me worthy. I refrained from all the dirty parts of non-Christian living. For instance, I never drank in high school, didn't take a sip. Even in international waters on my senior cruise. When everyone else was doing it, all the other so-called Christians, but I held firm, convicted that I would never cause my brother or sister to stumble because they saw me partaking. I didn't have sex in high school either. Now, that wasn't so much because... I had a lot of options or offers, but it was virgin. I didn't mean to have a dramatic pause there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I traversed college with most of these convictions firmly intact and remained humbly confident not only in my worthiness but also in some measure of self-righteousness and then came a divorce whoa let's give there some details there i'll just move along no i'll add some details i had grown up in the south in, in, in Tennessee and, and I went to a college in a place that was literally called the University of the South. I left after graduations for a couple years to coach baseball and teach English at a high school in Miami but returned to the University of the South for a year of coaching and coll- at the college level and during that year I found a fellow Christian or fellow Christ-filled woman that I believe to be my forever life partner. After one year of dating, I was so convicted that I had found the person that God had made for me, and I was so sure of this notion that I quit my job and followed her when she moved out west to California to start law school. And things worked out for a time. We went so far as getting married, convicted that God had called us into an eternal covenantal relationship. This was not Jerusha, by the way, <laughs> in case that you missed that part, just to be clear, sorry. After a few solid years, she told me one night that she was attracted to women. We spent more than three years separating and reconciling, arguing, debating, rationalizing, trying to figure out how to make a marriage work with divergent sexualities. After days and weeks and months and years of so many compromises, so many rationalizations, so much pain and suffering that I had never experienced or could imagine in my privileged life, she eventually cut me loose by serving me with papers, divorce papers. And in spite of all the efforts that we had made, we ended up being just another contributor to that rather damning statistic, that more marriages than not end up in divorce. This was my greatest loss. I, as, a, as, a, as a athlete, um, I hated losing. I lost a lot, so I really kind of hated myself in the process when I actually played games, but I hated losing, and this was the biggest loss that I could have experienced. It was a life loss. At least that's the way I understood it. And for years after that, I crawled under a rock. That's my euphemism (laughs) for going into bars. Uh, I was absolutely broken. I was angry. I shook my fist at the sky and asked, how, this, how could this have happened to me? It was a long, slow descent, into a cold, dark night. Like Jacob, I wrestled with the Lord. It took years. I bore a stain that I could never wipe clean. I had not committed some specific error, but I was tainted, and I hated it, and it was so very dark. A big part of that time involved some folks who in some of what became a very illustrative way of thinking about hospitality, at least for me, walked me through. I lived with some fellow graduate students at the time who though they weren't Christians, were somehow inspired by the Lord to give me safe haven. If you talk to them today, they'd probably let you know about if they ever came home and heard the doors, this is the end blaring on the loudspeakers, then they just needed to let me go through my tunnel. Even more helpful and enduring was the hospitality of my father. My, my mother had passed away the same year that my wife came out, uh, which made that year really a banner year. Um, my sister and three of my best friends, all Christians who lived far away, but who were no doubt right beside me as I made my way through. And though I really didn't want to do so, I was drawn back to my church in Los Angeles, which gratefully had a nighttime candlelit service where I could sit in the back in the darkness wrestle with my Lord, hear truth, feel grace, wash over me. It's crazy how in these instances that Holy Spirit provided what I might need in ways that may not look what social conventions offer. I can't say that I went looking for anything. I'd say today that while I was ready to let go of God, God wasn't letting go of me. And in time there came healing, first with the Lord, and then I met Jerusha, who really messed things up for me because I was pretty determined to be single and sort of flip the script on the notion that you had to be married, you had to have a family, all those things to be fulfilled. Samuel, Elizabeth, and then, and then. Life over the last decade or so bears very little resemblance to any of the decades before. I find it really, really good. But even with the goodness, I have to confess that my sense of that one big particular stain has never really gone away. In fact, it's only gotten worse as I went from a teaching career and state universities to one at a Christian college that expected me to be a Christian example to the students I taught where I constantly fear that I'm not Christian enough and then my wife goes and becomes an elder and a pastor at a church and they invite me to come up and speak in front of everyone where the last time I was here I peed in my pants And her parents move in and her dad was a pastor and her mom is the most ethical person I know, even if she's stubborn as hell. (laughs) I'm so exposed right now, it's terrifying. But is this not what we are called to do in in the name of hospitality? Whether we are giving or receiving... It's not an either or, it's both. This is community. This is how we do life together. I share all this to acknowledge that this passage in Mark tells me that no matter how bad I think my stain is, no matter how bad society might say that I've messed up, whether American society or church society or whichever side, no matter how much I sin again and again and again, that Jesus is not only ready but also desires. To sit at a table with me today he says follow me and then he comes to my house <laughs> and people around or everybody like why is he at your place and he's like because this dude's sick he needs the physician and boy do i don't we whether it's one big stain or some combination of a hundred different marks against you Whether it's something that you've done or some wrong that has been done to you, whatever the case, it's always time to let Jesus say, follow me, and to follow him right back home. Amen.
0: Um, So as we were, Bert shared this with me uh, last night, and... uh, And I said, I think you just need to share this. I don't think there's anything that I really need to add to this at all. Um, All of our stories are beautiful and hard. Um, When we were engaged, I had the opportunity to meet Bert's ex-wife. And we sat together. And the way that she welcomed me uh, was so beautiful. And she was so very vulnerable, nine months pregnant with her twins, her and her wife's twins. And the moment of sharing with her at the table with Bert um, was a blessing and was healing to me. Um, So each one of us has these journeys of receiving hospitality, of extending hospitality, and As tidy and transparent as we want it to be, real vulnerability is just messy and hard and awkward and good, and that's where Jesus meets us. And so I wanted our encouragement together this morning to be one of being willing to step into that place where You are offering yourself, and in that, offering the Spirit to be present. Whether somebody is coming to your home or you are going to somebody's home, that you are sharing life in a way that is vulnerable, and in a way that opens up that space for there to be love and healing, and it costs us because it's the start of our generosity, it's not the leftovers. And so our hope as a community is that we are a place that offers that as a starting point for community, that we are not the leftovers on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday night small group or a Saturday afternoon, but that that is the starting place for the rest of what we do and that we feel that. And my ask to you this morning is that if you find yourself questioning your place at the table, that you would be encouraged that your story and who you are, intrinsically who you are, is needed at the table. Jesus has called you to the table, and you are needed. You, who you are right now, are part of the invitation and the shalom and the wholeness of what the kingdom is right now, right now, where you are. Would you stand? and receive our benediction. Hospitable God, you invite us to a banquet where the last may be first and the humble and the mighty trade places. Let us share your abundance with no fear of scarcity. Let us greet strangers as angels you have sent. Send your spirit now so that we may find a place at your table and welcome others with radical hospitality. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.